Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock Podcast, the podcast about the beautiful club within the beautiful game. With me and my regular co-host, Peter Marsh. Hello, Peter. Hey, Ross. And welcome back to a guest from the past, a, I think about a year or so ago, uh, maybe a bit more. Um, it's Mr. Graham Phillips. Hello, Graham. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Very well, thank you. Excellent. Um, as we haven't had you on for a while, and before we get into any other subjects, um, just got to ask you about how you've been feeling about the Albion since you were last on. We think Graham Potter was probably in charge mid to most way through of his tenure at the time, probably something like that. Um, so you haven't had the hadn't had the experience of Deserby at the time. How have you found Roberto's football? Let's start with that. Uh, well, you have to pinch yourself, really, don't you? I mean, it's it's like, uh, and and I guess. Albion fans, uh, and I, I'm sort of one of them, being a bit bit pessimistic as in nature, um, so always thinking that something it can't last, surely. But um, but I'm now beginning to think that it might last. That we found the most extraordinarily charismatic uh, head coach who is making players who are you know pretty good generally, but making them into superstars. I just don't understand it. I, I, I just wonder whether that's it's ever feasible to do that in grassroots football. You know, you get these kids or something, you just make them fearless. I don't think it is. I think you've got to be an extraordinary personality and be able to impose a wonderful style and willpower onto onto these professional players uh, it's amazing I, I can't even think i don't even think someone like guardiola did that i think you know he he had it easy didn't he uh, i can't mm. think of a potter did it to an extent but not like this mm. amazing yeah and we we thought at the time we mentioned Graham Potter. We thought at the time we were making great progress, getting a bit more creativity and a bit more excitement in the style and brand of football under him, and that we're going in the right direction. But then with him leaving, going to Chelsea and flopping, you can understand with Chelsea that might just be a Chelsea thing. But with 
uh, Roberto doing so well, so much more with the same players. Okay, we've had some changes now as well, but already he was making his mark straight away, pretty much, wasn't he? Within a certain a small number of games, um, that you it shows Graham Potter up a little bit, doesn't it? In the sense that you wonder now, well, was he all, all that? Obviously, he was good, but well, the, the difference, I think, the chasm between the quality that Graham Potter definitely does have and the clearly elite level coaching that Roberto De Zerbi has is 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 very um, very obvious, very evident. And I, I really think he is an elite coach. I think he's he's well, he's already quite close to the top. He's going all the way to the top, isn't he? He's up there with you mentioned Guardiola. He's up there with the likes of Guardiola. And one thing I know Peter wants to come in on this, but just quickly one more thing as well was I can't remember who it was. Someone was talking about um Roberto De Zerbi visiting Manchester City at some point. Um it might have been before he started with us. And he was uh, obviously uh, locking, not locking horns, he was um, uh, chewing the fat with Guardiola, amongst other things. And apparently they were just non-stop talking. They continuously, relentlessly talking with each other about football. No one could get in a word in edgeways, and they literally just left them to it. Because <laughs> these conversations were long, extensive, incredibly intricate in detail. <laughs> and you think, well, these, these guys are just thinking on a different level. They've got so much more motivation so much more passion. Not that anyone doesn't else doesn't, but they've just got so much more uh, drive. I think you have to have that to be the absolute best. Uh, Peter? Yeah, I was going to say, it's ironic we're talking about Potter, of course, because it was a year today, apparently, that he resigned. Um, and I remember the podcast that evening, there was a lot of kind of like, I think without wanting to particularly say that I was I was for the future, I, I I was quite worried about what would happen afterwards. I was the only one probably who wasn't as gutted as everyone else because I'd never been that big a fan of Potter. And I don't think I even imagined that the next manager would get close to what De Zerbi has. I think I just wasn't as gutted because it was only the last 15 games, really. I thought he'd done as well as others, others maybe had been invested in him. But I think I think what you're saying about, um, about De Zerbi is right. I think how well he's doing is actually more damaging for Potter than his spell at Chelsea. I think Chelsea on its own could be written off as, well, they're a bit of a basket case, so brought these expensive players together. They, you know, he might have sorted out at a given time. But the fact that Zerbi came in and made players like Solly March look like he, he has mm-hmm. since he came in, when you compare him to what he was like under Potter, where he had decent, at least least one decent team where he was very good at left wing back most of the time, but he, he never looked like scoring this, this many goals or even close to. And the way he's like changed players, you know, players like, I mean, Casado was only used the last 15 games under Potter. Mm. Whereas I think under Zerbi, he'd have come in a lot earlier. And, you know, this, the, that team has just changed under him. And he's, I mean, yeah, we're so lucky to have him. I mean, although we're not lucky because it's clearly forward planning and Boom being aware of the, you know, managers like him existing and, you know, kind of, and the, and the team all, all being aware of, you know, as in we've got, you know, options for every position is that people leave. I think also, Sorry, I was just going to say, if I had nothing else to do in life, I think I would probably be maybe rather dully, but but quite interestingly for me, look at videos of De Zerbi at other clubs like Sassuolo and um, Shakhtar Donetsk and see what his style was like and whether it was exactly the same, whether they did the, you know, the risky playing out from the back, the, the clever one-twos, the one-touch, the sudden pace. I wonder if it was there or whether this is something that he's gradually, you know, built up towards. And he thinks, right, this is the Premier League. I can, I can 
possibly get away with this. By, by... Yeah, because it's interesting because he said something the other day about how we're the furthest away from his normal style of play that he's had of a team, but we're the nearest to his soul, which is a an interesting, almost suggesting like he's always wanted to play this way. Yeah. but has never actually had the players almost. Because I actually think he's gone more extreme this season. Billy Gilmore is literally standing facing goal with like about eight yards from goal for goal kicks these days and getting the ball and, you know, taking it from there, facing goal away from his opponents. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, I actually think he's got even more kind of hyper-deserving this season in terms of the way he plays. And it's, I actually still feel less nervous because I've seen so much more of it now than it, whereas last season done, I was worried. He wouldn't have done it at Norwich, would he, Billy Gilmore? Clearly. <laughs> no. It wouldn't have worked, would it? No, absolutely not. And um, that's the thing, it's like all the Norwich fans writing off Gilmore and then using last season or half of last season as proof that they were right. Forget that their, their strikers were like Josh Sargent and, yeah. um, and, and Bird Pukey, or his name was. Sargent was, who missed an open goal against us at one point. I mean, they, they had an absolutely appalling team that season and Gilmore was maybe not very good, but he also wasn't to blame for them going down or anything like that. Peter Pukey, your pronunciation makes me sick, I have to say. That's terrible. As was the pun I just come out with there. But no, I think your points stand, definitely. It's about who's, who's managing you, who's coaching you. You know, it's going to be different, isn't it? It's that Norwich, but he wasn't being given a, a run of games, and obviously he doesn't have the same quality to work with on, on and off the pitch. Um, it's going to be a totally different ball game. And um, with, yeah. with um, De Zerbi, I think you... You know, he's so motivational. He's he's giving them different ideas. Everyone that's been interviewed has not only said that they're the best coach they've worked with and that he's uh, really enthusiastic and motivational, but also that they've been finding out new things about how to play football. Even Lalana and people like that have said that in interviews. And Pascal Grosch, congratulations, by the way, on his first call-up to Germany at the age of 32 uh, this week. Uh, he's another one who's who's got a new lease of life. Someone said on WhatsApp, I think today or yesterday, that he seemed to be um, flailing a little bit under Graham Potter in the final games. He, he was kind of becoming the, the loose end a little bit. But he's come right back into... Well, the richest vein of form or amongst the richest. I think towards the end, Potter finally did realise how to get the best out of him. It was <laughs> that a lot of the time he was there, he was played in a quite defensive role. And he, it's like there was one point at Palace, we played Grush and Alana in midfield. It's like, what are you doing together? It's like, both great players, but they're not a central midfield pairing. We just basically had no midfield for that game. And it just, yeah, I think because Basuma was out and there was someone else out, it was insane. And, uh, yeah, I, I just don't think Potter had the way of getting the best out of players in the same way that even close to that Zerbi does. And... So, so, so who hasn't enjoyed playing football under Zerbi? Do you think? Uh, I guess Robert Sanchez is probably. Yeah, Sanchez Webster. I'd say it's a bit in, more in and out maybe now, possibly. Yeah. And people have left. Obviously, Alzate. Uh, and the likes of Neil Morpé. Maybe it was a matter of game time. Maybe it's they a both matter left of... before Zerbi. It's like, uh, well, Alzate went on loan before the Zerbi came in last season, didn't he? Yeah, but he didn't, but he hasn't come back into the equation. And Mope left for Everton before he came. Oh, yeah, fair enough. That was before, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, Yeah. I mean, not, not many is the answer, I think. And if they don't, there's probably a reason why it might be an attitude. It might be just one of those rare people that won't fit, just can't fit at all into what he's trying to do. Um, Robert Sanchez, I think, fits into that category. Um, whether it's a matter of... I think it's a combination of attitude and he just didn't fancy him as much. Uh, I don't role. think he regard Nick Pope as a great option in this team, judging by his kicking last weekend. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, yeah. Well, 
Um, let's let's quickly talk about Newcastle. Now you mentioned Nick Pope. Let's let's round off that. We did a match day special, so a lot of the opinion already covered. But I want to get your views on it as well. Um, first of all, Richard Holburton, who we still keep trying to get back on. He's a great contributor. Posts like so much good stuff in our WhatsApp groups, but he's never available. Come on, Richard, you've got to come back on. But I am going to quote him. He said in uh, a few days ago. Uh, thought we looked good in all areas and better balanced than against West Ham United when much of our early attacking was going through Mittimer and they clearly had a plan for that. JP adds another dimension. Uh, Gilmore, as, as Raul Pedro, obviously. Uh, Gilmore improving at, a, at some rate and Ferguson phenomenal. Tough for Webster to regain a starting spot unless it really is just rest and rotate, as RDZ Zed claimed not very convincingly pre-match. Footnote for the trivia buffs, all our yellow cards were for substitutes. This must have been a rarity. I thought previously there should have been amnesty of, say, four matches before accumulation kicks in to allow players to get used to the new rules. Uh, happens with parking regulations, he says. Um, so um, we will come on to the new rules with Graham from your qualified ref capacity um, a little bit later on. But in terms of comments on Newcastle, either what Richards has said or your own thoughts on the game, obviously a great result, good performance as well, and a really good atmosphere right from the start, which helps. Um, other than those, those those basic facts and the fact we won the game, which is great, what did you make of it? Who who were your standout players? Well, was there anything you well, noticed as well? I think I was really surprised Newcastle didn't just play like West Ham. I thought they would. I thought hmm. that's probably Eddie Howe would probably work something out that you know we would we would run into these blocks of players, sort of banks of midfield players and banks of defenders, and get nowhere. But I suppose they were uh, they were struggling a bit having to put Burn into the into the middle of the back four, and that clearly was a was a, was a bad, bad move for them. Um, not that I think the sales would have been any better, but um, but after the, that, those early blips where they missed a couple of chances, but you know, it was sort of early days for them. They um, they were I thought they were sort of very meek and mild and uh, lacking interest. And in fact, I, I I have to say that I saw what was admittedly a, a, a a weaker Newcastle side, dominated by the Albion in New York um, in the friendly. And it was almost like a carbon copy of that. It was like, you know, Isaac, Isaac was, was playing up front and doing a bit of chasing, but he looked around and other players didn't bother chasing very much. Almiron was pathetic in that case. And, um, and you can't give an, a team like the Albion that amount of space. I thought they, they played a really poor game. I think he he got found out badly, Eddie Howe, um, really did, which yeah. is good. Absolutely, and the only the only recognisable traits out and out were the shit house tactics. Yeah, there's lots of niggly fouls. Yeah, um, Dan Byrne was probably. I mean, you mentioned him. He, he was yeah. bloody awful in this game, and yeah. he, his only modus operandi seemed to be to just keep doing niggly fouls. Uh, to yeah. try and undermine our flow, which yeah. of course is a how trait, isn't it? Um, yeah, and Anthony Gordon, he was very late to get booked, I thought. But, um, he, he was, yeah. Late, on the late, late tackles, probably. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, Anthony Gordon did get booked pretty much the first time he caused an infringement. It was a bookable offence anyway. But yeah. he's got away with murder this season, and I was really glad that he um, was booked so soon into the game because I think that that also oh, affected him. It, it inhibited some of his game, well, the the, um, the, the um, shithousery side of the game that he likes to do. 
Uh, you know, he got Trent Alexander booked and almost got him sent off indirectly as a result of that um, foul. But it was a blatant foul, wasn't it? That game, the, the yeah, level. Yeah. And he yeah. shouldn't have been on the pitch because he should have been suspended for at least two, maybe three yellows the week before. Yeah. So, yeah. But he got, as I said, he was picked up on straight away in this game. As soon as he did something worthy of a, of a yellow, he was given it, rightly. And I think that helped as well. And yeah, it was it was a, I, I think, a pale shadow of the usual Eddie Howe team, wasn't it, really? Peter, would you, I know Peter's eating, I think, but <laughs> he might, might come in in a minute on that one. But um, I mean, I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah. I agree. I think they they didn't they couldn't deal with us basically the pace of Pedro and Ferguson up front they just couldn't deal with them um, yeah Burn and Sh- and Shah were really poor both of them should have been booked significantly earlier yeah. and I thought generally all round we handled them really well Beltman came in did really well Van Hecker had a really good game barring the goal where he should argue have done a bit better but we forgive that at three nil three nil up with you know two minutes left or whatever. And yeah, up front we just they just couldn't deal with us, and it was yeah, really really good game, and it's nice to beat them, especially to beat Eddie Howe's team and to beat the yeah Newcastle as well. Obviously with their uh, rather dodgy owners. Yeah, they, they they were the, the they were the three unsung heroes, weren't they? I mean, a lot uh, for, you know the media sort of um, pounced on Ferguson rightly, um, and then the Albion sort of you know big uh, sort of. Bigged up um, Pedro, but for me, um, it was the, the the strength and and sort of s- solid performances um, of Gilmore, Van Heck, and uh, Veltman that were were outstanding. Really, I yeah, thought. all of them were outstanding, weren't they? Veltman definitely gave greater balance, and I think just looked so much more comfortable there than what we've put in before. Uh, and yeah, and Gordon Pedro, didn't right. really have a lot. I mean, was, Gordon was great, I thought. You know, really skillful, mm. really looked good, but he never really got round up. Not really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I agree with you on Gilmore. I think Gilmore is really flourishing now. He's got these these issues off the pitch that are no fault of his own seem to be behind him now. And it's no coincidence that he's now coming back to the player that we, we'd we seen at Chelsea and um, are now seeing with the Albion. I think he's really flourishing. Um, he's flourishing under Roberto. I think he's flourishing in general for freedom of not having those issues off the field. And he's he's looking like he's owning the role, isn't he? And I can see him holding his place down. I know we will have this rotation element that Richard mentioned in that that message we we posted uh, mentioned a, a moment ago, but um, there will be some level of rotation involved. But I do think he's going to play a significant uh, part, and he'll play way more than fifty percent of the games. That's for sure. Going forwards, I think. Um, if it wasn't for the, I mean, you can't not give Ferguson man of the match when he scores a hat trick, albeit one of them was deflected, but it was on target, so yeah. it's been attributed to him. So he scored three goals in essence. Um, it's hard not to give him man of the match, and yeah, you know, the sponsors did. I think, I think the the other the TV guys did as well. Um, but Gilmore, if you just look on the overall performance, he's right up there, isn't he? I think in that match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean. He never scores a goal, does he? Uh, and uh, he, he's really unlucky. That shot was fantastic. Oh, yeah. The, the one that led to the first goal, yeah. Top. You know, usually we see those go ballooning over the bar, don't we? And go all over the place or slice to the corner flag. But the way, you know, he, he, he really kept it down beautifully. I and mean, it gave Cope real problems, I think. Really. 
Yeah, you can't blame Pope really. He, I mean, it was such a searing shot. He, yeah. All he could do was try and parry it and then yeah. just hope it would happen to bounce somewhere to safety. You couldn't really yeah. get any direction on the save, could you? And yeah. it was Ferguson to pop it away. Yeah, I think he actually tried to, to get it into his um, into his chest. I, I think he, he did try to do that. Um, yeah. It was probably a mistake, but uh, goalkeepers, I think, yeah, good goalkeepers don't like parrying the ball straight out, do they? Which no. is what he ended up doing because he couldn't hold it or couldn't get anywhere near to hold it. But, um, yeah, very dangerous thing to do. Uh, but, yeah, it was mm. wonderful. I thought, fantastic. And it's good that... The midfield seems to be um, seems to be resolving itself a little bit. I mean, just to refer to another couple of posts we've had recently. Um, Alan, friend of the show, of course, um, he posted something on WhatsApp. Uh, I think it was um, after the last game. I think it was after the West Ham game. He said there is a debate to be had about our long term forward planning of our defensive unit. We sold White after a year, and players like Roberts, Songi, Kabovnik, all should be coming through at senior level now. Have not reached that level and have been offloaded. Still overly reliant on Dunk's presence. Not wanting to reopen the Caicedo debate, but needs to be said that I'm sure up to last Christmas we did not expect him to leave. I know it can be argued that we that uh, we knew he was going from January, but six months is not enough time in the way we forward plan in getting a young player through the system. System where we do not have a break uh, to break our wage structure to get someone Premier League ready made. We do not want to get someone in who's average. We want to find a gem who becomes a high level player, and that takes time. And Andy Bass, another friend of the show, same day said, We have to be patient with the midfield. You don't replace Mac and Moses overnight. It will take a while for the new heart of the team to start beating properly. Hopefully, Baleba will help with that process. And I know, you know, we're we're still waiting to see Belaba, but it looks like uh, we're starting to rectify those points being made already. And one other quote as well from your son, who was on the podcast with you last time you came on, uh, Jack Phillips said, also worth remembering that when RDZ came in, we hadn't really used Mitama, Ferguson and CISO, Van Hecker, Buenanote or Gilmore. All of those will play an important part this season. Add to that the experience of Dahoud, Igor and Milner, as well as exciting new attacking talent in Pedro and Adingra. It's so much stronger of a squad, even if our two midfield stars are no longer here. So, I mean, how do you guys see us in terms of our midfield now? Do you think we've, obviously, notwithstanding Belaba, we don't know, we've got yeah, to see Yeah, that, that's the key, isn't it, though? Is that going to be the thing? Is that going to be the key? I think that will be, I mean, I'm not saying he'll immediately be brilliant because, I mean, yeah, Casado was, but Basuma wasn't. And was, but I think he is the key. Yeah. Um, if, he doesn't, if he doesn't do it or takes a while to settle in, we do have, I mean, even Saturday, there were big gaps in our midfield, which Newcastle, if they'd taken their chances, they had two really good chances at the start. They had chances after both our first and second goals where they should have done more with them as well. You know, there other nights they could have scored early and got the, got ahead, and then we know from West Ham how difficult that is to come back. Yeah. So, I mean, for all the, especially with the games we've got coming up, you know, it's for all the, um, yeah, for all the, you know, it, it was a brilliant result. Newcastle and night would have taken their chances, and then you know, obviously, it's a different game. Yeah, two very different voices in the football world. Um, Chris Boyd, former player who works for Sky Sports News on Soccer Saturday, and James Horncastle, who's a rather more discerning um, journalist, uh, who's an expert on Italian football. Um, Leeds fan, though, Peter, but anyway, never mind. Uh, um, they, they've both described in the last week or so Brighton as being the best-run club in the world. And you've got a pretty good argument to say they're right. Even with that, and with the great succession planning we have, there's still going to be 
some anomalies and some mistakes. In this case, a bit of an anomaly in that we obviously knew we were going to need to replace Casado uh, before we even got him in, probably. You know, we're planning out far ahead. But sometimes these jolts in the system are going to happen no matter how well run we are, aren't they? There's going to be moments where we, we know we need to replace Casado. Balaba probably is the man for that, but it's, you know, we've just got him in and he's young and he hasn't had time to be blooded in. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be seamless. Um, I, I, do you reckon I, we're going to, we're going to overcome that? Are we going to, are we going to be surviving that and still doing well this season? That I, I think that, um, you have to like go back a bit to the Zuma going. And I think that, um, we, we were quite, uh, Patient with the Sumo's fans and maybe as, as a team, uh, he, he was fairly erratic, I think, as a player. Uh, obviously skillful and had talent, but he would do weird things. You know, his shooting was appalling. Um, and sometimes he'd get caught, uh, you know, uh, dwelling on the ball, but he then became a brilliant player and he played for a long time as a brilliant player, I think, uh, under Potter. Um, before Casido was introduced. And I think um, and then we had no thought about Casido coming in with Basuma um, and even strengthening the midfield even more. So I think it's all, you know, you have to be um, fairly tolerant of, of the way the club is, is progressing, I think, now. Certainly they've, they've taught us all the lesson about sort of overreacting about when are we going to get a striker you know that, that, that that's long gone now. um uh so i think as fans we probably have to be tolerant about the club knowing uh what to do when they sell players like McAllister and Casido. um and maybe Belieber is just going to be another great player that's come from nowhere maybe Buonanotte is going to suddenly flourish as as he is expected to um, you know, South American, uh, Carlos Tevez said, you know, he's a wonderful player. He's going to be a fabulous player. Um, we've yet to see that perhaps, but it's a matter of time, maybe. And we've not played him in, in this position. I mean, he's not really a winger no. from what you hear. He's a right, he's a set attacking midfielder. So the problem is for him is we have a lot of options in that position. And that's the issue that's, yeah. you know, he's got a face and he's got to, you know, earn his spot. But I mean, in a way, what better season to do that given the number of games we're going to get? I mean, I'm sure he'll play at Chelsea. He may well start at least one or two of the European games after because they'll probably look at that and think, well, actually, players like Buonanotte probably suit the European game better mm-hmm. than players who may be in the Premier League who suit that better. So. You know, kind of depending on. So there'll be a lot of you know interchange of players this season, and we then see so out till Christmas. Well, not he's got a chance to really kind of like put his you know put his name in the ring for like kind of future places or whatever. But I mean, Enciso was such a gutter. That that game at Wolves, he destroyed them in the second half. Um, Those assists were just superb, and to lose him for so long. Yeah. Uh, well, there's another example of a player that's come from nowhere, which you know you would never. Uh, and this is the thing: there might, there are bound to be more, aren't there? That's yeah. Just to right. know, there, are, there are going to be more players coming from nowhere. Um, As you were saying, before last April, we didn't have anything. Gilmore had barely started. Enciso yeah. uh, had barely started. And now they're two, when Enciso's yeah. fit, two crucial parts of the squad. Yeah. Undav as well, who obviously has gone on loan now, but was, you know, became a crucial part of the squad at that stage of the season when we needed him. You know, yeah. got, got, got some, you know, maybe isn't the most all-round, best all-round player, but he got some really crucial goals. Yeah. Um, I, I, w- I would imagine, you know, that that the club are looking 
to purchase or bring on uh, talented youngsters, either that they found abroad or that they've got at the training ground, which fans don't know anything about because they're not necessarily tuned in, who are going to be brilliant. I would imagine that's that's currently the case. Whether that model would carry on forever, I really don't care because um, football's cyclical and this is what you have to do. You, you have to really enjoy it when it's great and not think about when it's going to be bad, despite me earlier saying that I'm a pessimist by nature. I, no, I think I agree. I mean, I never considered that we get to Europe until like the last, you know, until like halfway through last season, I think I started to wonder. Yeah. But before that, we were like, you know, until the last few games of that previous season, we were pretty much always 15th to 17th, occasionally up to 14th, 13th, sort of playing Premier League. Yeah. And then suddenly that, that late run pushed us to ninth. And then obviously we built on that. I never, this is, this is more than I thought we'd ever achieve. So, you know, I mean, this is, I mean, the, the idea of like, we're planning trips to Athens, Amsterdam and Marseille, just insane, really, frankly. Is. Yeah, indeed. And on that subject, Graham, uh, are you going to any of the European games? What's your status on that one? Uh, well, I am. I'm, I've, I've booked all these, uh, apart from Athens, uh, which I'm sort of currently thinking I might stall on for a bit. I'm, I'm already booked to go to Marseille with no tickets. Uh, booked to go to Marseille and, and Ajax. Um, and I've, I've uh, spent hours trying to work out the cheapest way of going. The cheapest but most pleasant way of going. Bearing on, bearing in mind, I won't spend a thousand pounds on a hotel room in the centre of Amsterdam. So, hmm. um, yeah. So I'm not going to tell you what they all are because otherwise, well, of course, it's too late. I've booked them all now. So you know, I could tell you, but I'm going by train and plane and Airbnb and uh, you know all that. So you know, it's all very civilized. I hope. Fantastic. Well, Peter, you're going to all three, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, I'm very jealous because I wish I could do that. I'm skipping Marseille. Athens is still in debate. I am going to Ajax. So definitely, Graham, we can all meet up for that one. There'll be a number of of people over there. We'll be doing our first Euro Match Day specials, I'm sure, as well, uh, or Match Day special for that one. Um, Really looking forward to it. Can't wait. And as you said, it's a pinch of self-time, isn't it? It really is still feeling a bit surreal. It doesn't quite feel... It's happening, yeah. <laughs> I mean, our, our next nine games are, what's it, like, United, AEK Athens, Bournemouth, which is an ironic one, Chelsea, Villa. Um, Liverpool, Liverpool, I put, I put Athens, and, yeah, and then, yeah, and then uh, Marseille, Liverpool, Man City, Ajax, that's our next, uh, and I might have missed one as well, or Villa, and then, yeah, so that's our next nine games. It's, like, slightly <laughs> insane. Amazing, we'll isn't win it? Them all, I think. I think we'll win them we, all. If we win them all, I think I might believe we're going to win the league, to be honest, and the Europa League and the quadruple. Yeah. <laughs> would you, if you won them all, would you be a believer, would you? Because that's the possible Lots. new season for Carlos, isn't it? Yeah. And anyone that knows him, Crispies, who I'm acquainted with, uh, is in a WhatsApp group with me, and he's he's come up with some lyrics. I'm not going to sing it because that would just be too unpleasant. But it's uh, the, the the words to "I'm a believer" by the Monkeys. He's come up with. I thought that this season would be tougher. Casado and Mac would be a loss, but now they're gone and we move on. No one at Brighton gives a toss. Because have you seen his pace, Carlos Believer? Not a trace, no doubt in my mind. He's our ace. Woo. 
Cameroonian midfielder Carlos Baleba. What a find. Followed by, of course, down, 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 down. Yeah, I'm sure everyone's going to remember all the words for that. Yeah, it's a bit wordy, a bit wordy, but Tim does like a, a bit of a... a everyone's just going to sing Baleba, Baleba. He's not a season tick holder anymore, but he goes to games when he can, but he used to do a lot of the singing in the North, North Stand back in the day. So hello to Tim if you're listening. I've put him onto my podcast in recent weeks, so he might be. If you are, good effort, sir. <laughs> anyway... I certainly remember him at uh, Withdean. I think he used to shout a lot at Withdean, didn't he? Yes, that would probably be true. Yes, that sounds about sounds about right. <laughs> um, on the, um, the, the internationals, we're, we're speaking on... Thursday, you mentioned actually the uh, anniversary of Graham Potter resigning. It's also courtesy of a friend of mine, Wedge, who's pointed out that it's the 42nd birthday of Only Fools and Horses today, the 8th of September. The first ever episode, Big Brother, was broadcast on the 8th of September, 1981. I'm sure everyone wanted and needed to know that. I'll pop it in there as it happened to be mentioned. Um, But uh, it's also, of course, the International Week uh, coming up. So we've got a break from games. So there's nothing to talk about in terms of an upcoming match for the Albion. Uh, But of course, internationals do mean some involvement for Albion players. Players. Uh, we've mentioned Pascal Gross. Congratulations on his first call up to Germany. Starting with him, I mean, I, a fantastic career he's had with us. He signed for us in the summer when we were just just about to start in the Premier League. So he's been with us as long as we've been in the Prem, and he's been a fantastic signing, as good a value as anybody really a- along the way, hasn't he? He's had peaks and troughs a little bit, but generally he's been a great servant. He has, in just a couple of weeks ago, become, when, when he scored the consolation against West Ham, become the Premier League era top scorer for the Albion with 27 goals, going ahead of uh, Glenn and Neil Morpé, I think it is. Um, I don't know what Michael Robinson's record is offhand, actually, but he can't be too far behind that as well. Um, if he stays with us for the, for the rest of his career, he might be whatever that record is. And apart from him not beating the first man on corners quite a number of times too often. He's been brilliant, hasn't he? And there's some superb stats, actually, which um, have come up in uh, the recent last couple of weeks. Uh, where was it? I think it was actually after um, after the last game. Um, there's a stat which says that, if I can just get my details up, the most chances created this season so far is Pascal Grosch with 16. This is after after the weekend's match. Kauro Mitama is joint second with 14, along with Bukayo Saka and uh, Bruno Fernandes. And I think there was a stat that a friend of the show, Robin, mentioned, which was that since he signed for us, uh, Kevin De Bruyne is the only person who's created more chances than Pascal Grosch in that period, so since 2017. Incredible stats. And when you consider we weren't that great a team for a lot of that, especially under Hewton when we were quite defensive, and then even yeah. under Potter, we we you know we did I suppose we did create more chances, but we were still more limited up front and that sort of thing. So it's quite stunning, really. Yeah, for someone of his, you know, considering the level we've been at for most of that time, to be in that situation. I think uh, I think there should be a stat, or someone should uh, get get some stats together about how many Crichtons Pascal has done in his <laughs> career at Brighton, and how many have been successful. And how many have been unsuccessful? I would say that very few would be unsuccessful. It no one seems to have worked it out. No, and of course, he gets to do it in the Johan Cruyff Arena, potentially, later this season. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, which is going to be great. Think, I think his German career, because uh, Flick is um, under big pressure in Germany, isn't he? So yeah. although he's got two friendly games, they, they, they've gone off in big time, haven't they? So yeah. not not playing well. I don't think they've won many games in the last sort of 16, very few. And um, 
So they're playing Japan and France. It's not, Which is not easy. easy. So I reckon uh, Pascal will not play because he'll be too frightened to be, you know, or the sort of experimental with bringing on Pascal. He'll get maybe five minutes if they're winning or drawing uh, at the end of maybe one of the games. But I'm usually wrong when it comes to things like that. So he'll probably play both games for you, you know, the end of <laughs> Yeah, it, it doesn't it's... feel like there's an awful lot of point though of calling him up at 32 no. without playing him in a way. I'd say, I mean, what if you're 21? I'd kind of understand it. You can give him experience a bit, but there's limited point at like, yeah, his age. Yeah. Um, one other stat actually, and this is not surprising based on what I've already said, but in 2023-24 so far, he's created more chances than any other player in Europe's big five leagues. Just another stat to commend him on. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right, um, Graham, about the, the pressure on Flick, that's for sure. No no easy games there, is it, those two matches? Um, not easy to get results in those, whether they're friendlies or not, if there's scrutiny on them. Yeah. Those, those are pressure games. And um, yeah, I don't know if he'll get any time or not, but... Um, it's it's interesting that he's been called up at this point in time. I suppose he's at a peak in his career, mm-hmm. but still, it feels it feels a bit of an odd one. Maybe it's the Roberto De Zerbi, uh, you know, magic, isn't it? Everybody's watching Brighton now. You know, they, whether I read something about uh, somebody a coach gets somewhere, I don't know whether it's in the UK or whether it's in Europe. But every Monday morning they get the Brighton footage and they just watch it as a coaching team, you know, to yeah. see what's going on. And and I think there's an element of that. I think people go, How is he doing this? you know, how is he doing and how do players like Pascal Gross fit into that? You know, because they were just like, you know, routine, unsung heroes that, you know, never play for Germany, never Never might go to Liverpool. Oh no, no, he won't go to Liverpool. It was all about that, wasn't it? But now I think coaches are thinking, well, if he can play and deserve his squad, and he gets his place virtually every week, I'm going to pull him up. Yeah, I think there's a shift in perspective, and um, yeah, he, he can finish. That's the thing. I mean, great finish against West Ham. The game, brilliant volley. Was it against Everton? I can't remember last season. The Wolves, yeah, well, the Wolves one. The Wolves, the Everton yeah. one was a chip when he went through. When they basically set him up, and he went through and chipped the keeper. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So some great goals. Someone else who's got great goals, but probably I fear will not overtake Pascal Grosch. Uh, as our, our, our record scorer in the top flight, or, or Michael Robinson, and definitely won't overtake our um, record ever scorer for club, was probably going to be Evan Ferguson, because I fear that we will not keep him for long enough for him to achieve that record, no matter how quickly he scores the goals. He's got 10 already in the Premier League. I think it's 12 or 13 in all competitions. So he's one-tenth of the way to the Premier League 100 club already, which is incredible. Um but he has been injured. Uh, he reported for training with Ireland. Uh, apparently a knee injury of some description was uncovered. So he's been immediately ruled out of both their games, which are gutter for all the Irish because they are competitive qualifiers for the Euros uh, for 2024. Um, but he's yeah sitting out of those two games. Speculation then mounting as to whether he might change allegiance because, of course, his mum is English. I really, really doubt that. I think he's I, an Irish. I don't think he can. No, well, no, there's new rules, isn't there? Because you, if you play, I think the debate was whether it's friendlies and not and non-friendlies, and it both counts. So he's played significantly more than the minimum. I I actually don't necessarily agree with the logic that that he'll go because there's always talk about whether he'll go this summer and stuff like that. 
next summer. But he was a player who came to us to get first-team football. Now, if he goes to Liverpool or Man U or Tottenham in the summer, there's no guarantee of that. He needs game time. He's only 18. I, I could see him staying three years and having three full seasons with us. He's still only 21 then. He's probably earning... We could probably happily give him more money as well because if he, keep, if he keeps developing, we'll probably give him a pretty good wage again, which he's probably already on at this point. He got a new contract, five-year deal, once he'd already broken through, didn't he? So I, I could see him staying three seasons and being like, well, actually, I'm going to be 21 then or whatever still. I've still got almost all my career ahead of me, mainly because he made that decision to come to us in the first place to get game time. And so he doesn't want to do... I think that's a fair point, and it's, it's entirely feasible. I could see, I could see him staying for three years. So he, yes, he could catch Pascal, he could catch Michael Robinson. He won't. I think be... if he stays for three years, he'll catch everyone, basically. Yeah, yeah. barring some. I think crazy he'll get double figures each of those seasons quite comfortably. I mean, he, especially if we're we're still playing the way we are now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we get to the Harry Kane scenario where he stays with us for so long. No, that's up records. I mean, that's one, but that's fair enough, you know. I, but it I does know seem... we're not. I know we're not Liverpool, but. I... I've got a feeling Michael Owen stayed with Liverpool quite a while uh, before yeah. he went to Real Madrid. And I think, um, you know, they didn't win a great deal, did they, with him in the side, I don't think. No. They were no. great. I mean, he was prolific and fantastic. He did his career no harm staying at Liverpool. I know we're not Liverpool, and it's, you can't really compare, but they probably weren't. I think they got a cup win, maybe. But they didn't get a lot else. We're in Europe, of course. Yeah. But why not? You know, those stats last weekend were a real reminder of how good Owen was at at such a young age because it was the the number of hat tricks in the Premier League under 19 year olds. And it was one for Chris Bart Williams, one for Robbie Fowler, one for Evan Ferguson, and I think three for Michael Owen, which is an incredible record to have three Premier League hat tricks by the time you're before you're 19. That is phenomenal. And because of his injuries and because of the problems he had later in his career, and maybe one or two poor moves, poor transfers didn't really work out, you forget. But at that point, he was. Stunning player. Yeah. It's when he bulked up too much that he lost a bit of pace and then the hamstrings came as well and it seemed to go off the boil a, a bit. I mean, he's still a great player, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's in very esteemed and very rare company, isn't it? That that stat of scoring a hat-trick at yeah. that age. Yeah. And fantastic for him. I just hope the injury isn't too serious, of course. I've got uh, a client at the moment who's uh, Irish and he's uh, lamenting the, the missing of him for these two games. He thinks they're crucial. Yeah. And he thinks Kenny's on his way now. That will probably do for him. Um, but he's, uh, he's also so excited to have such a talent to have a whole, you know, a whole uh, career's worth of time ahead of him. And, uh, and of course you've got Andrew Moran, who uh, is looking a really, really good attacking midfielder in mm. our ranks. And we've also got who's who's played and I think scored as well uh, for the islands. Uh, is it the twenty ones? Yeah, ones team, which is Peter. Well, we're not sure between Marco Mahoney or Marco. What's his name? Uh, Mark. Yeah, one or the other. Could be Marnie. Yeah. Marnie. I think he's, it's he's Marnie. Got four or five Marnie. goals in the twenty threes this season. Well, he looks quite an interesting. Another of our Irish prospects that we could. Thing. I mean, I don't want to overhype Ferguson, uh, obviously, because the last thing you want to do is do that. But I don't think it's crazy to say that he could be the world, the Irish equivalent of Bale, that actually he could really kind of inspire Ireland to a number of tournaments, which is what Bale's essentially done in recent years. Wales hadn't qualified for so long. And Bale, not not single-handedly, but certainly it was the, the major influence in that kind of happening. And it's, it's not impossible to say Ireland will have the same from Ferguson because he is genuinely that good and he's only 18. It, I mean, he destroyed Newcastle last weekend. 
And it, and in essence, he should have had a hat trick against West Ham. He had three dangerous chances that were yeah. not saved. Yeah, one or two could have got maybe in the, further in the corner, but they were still pretty dangerous chances. And uh, and he hit the post with a brilliant effort at Wolves as well. Yeah, it Wolves? So, uh, yeah, he, he, oh. on the turn where he hit it. Was that the Wolves game? I think. I think so. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if he could actually get to the hundred club with us? If he could stay long enough for that, it's a dream. It's a, a fantasy, probably, but it would be fantastic. A um, couple of pl- youth players who, who really didn't have such a great story for sure um, are uh, we, we've had in the past. James Tilly, who of course moved on, he went to Crawley, went elsewhere. He's now ended up at Wimbledon. He scored five goals in five games, so it looks like he's found. His his club, you know, just the right place for him. He's on fire at the moment. And one other word about former Albion players, Danny Cashman, who we had on the podcast when he was still at the Albion a couple of years ago as a young up-and-comer. Uh, he moved on. I can't remember where he went to. Is it Wickham or somewhere? Um, he's in- wasn't it? And then he went on loan to a few places. Oh, that's right. And he's ended up at Worthing, the latest Albion Academy graduate to end up at Worthing, where Dean Cox was for a while, where um, Reese Meekums is, where Jake Robinson, Robinson is. Jake, Jake Robinson, yeah. Jake Robinson, yeah. And um, someone else as well, uh, Kane Wills, uh, the midfielder. And that's the ones that I can recall offhand. There might be others as well besides. So good luck to Danny in his uh, new role there. Worthing having a good season. Except well, on, for- a, on a Sussex ex-Albion note, I yeah. noticed um, that uh, Carl Emerson, or Emerson, who was the one who signed for Blackpool from us, the youngster, signed for Eastbourne on loan today. All right, okay, interesting. Yeah, Emerson, yeah. Emerson wasn't it the striker who at one point was talked about in the same kind of way as as um, Ferguson and was like, kind of, yeah. they were both in the youth team together. Also, Laurent Tolai, the um, Al- Albanian British guy who was um, a, a fire, a really fiery scorer in the youth ranks, had a bad injury just when he looked like he might be able to get a, a loan or even a break into the team. Uh, never quite seemed the same, but he has then been sold. I think he ended up at, was it Peterborough? Where he, no, um, Salford. Where is it? Salford. He goes to Salford on loan. Yeah, it might be Salford. And he's ended up, he, he was a temporary goalkeeper after their guy got sent off after about three minutes. Oh, no that was this season. So this season's Aldershot. Aldershot, that was it. Yeah, Aldershot. So yeah, the goalkeeper got sent off. He was put in place because they didn't have a goalie on the bench. And he was then subbed from his goalie rank, at least. I think he stayed on the pitch. Yeah, he went out front. They wanted an extra option up front. Yeah, um, yeah, kind of a bit bizarre scenario. There's been a few of those. Also, some weird. Speaking of um, lower leagues, uh, Portsmouth. I think they've had two games this season where they've had to call someone out of the crowd, uh, qualified ref, because of um, injuries and issues going on with fourth officials and refs and so on and so forth. So, Graham, I'm sure you're smiling away about this one. Have you have you had to do that ever? Have I had to do? No, I've never had to do that, and I don't think I'd be. I'd have been tempted. Uh, first of all. I, how on earth would you? You're you're watching Brighton and they're you know they're drawing one all and you suddenly have to go and run the line. I mean, <laughs> you have to be incredibly. I mean, it would be awful, wouldn't it? You'd you'd be totally um, unprepared uh, for a start. Yeah. Uh, you'd be lining your favourite team, which would be really really difficult. So you would probably err on the cautious side and give off sides when they were clearly not always against Brighton because you'd be yeah. thinking I must not be seen to be biased because you can bet your life if a if a, a spectator who was a qualified referee watching Portsmouth or Brighton in the home crowd went on a line you can bet your life the players in that line and the away team would be having a real go at you I, <laughs> I, 
Well, I'd be hurling abuse at you on social media, Graham, afterwards, um, for sure, definitely. Absolutely. If you'd be harsh on the album. I, I think it's uh, nothing worse. The only time I've ever seen it was, uh, was when I was really young and Jimmy Hill uh, famously ran the line, um, you know, like a, like a pop star. Um, he's suddenly at Highbury uh, for an Arsenal game. He ran the line in his tracksuit and um, was okay. Uh, he's a qualified referee, but I don't think he'd ever refereed. I had just done the, the exam. And um, he was all right, but he loved it, of course, because it was a chance to be on telly and doing something weird. I'm not sure if I believe that story, Graham. Jimmy Reckon, I'm just rubbing my chin here. Uh, <laughs> anyone of a certain age will know that joke. Sorry uh, for anyone that doesn't. <laughs> right. Well, we'll talk a bit more about refs. We're going to have a quick break. In part two, we'll talk a bit more about the refing side of things. There's the new rules that have come out this season. We've got the new um, thing that's been proposed about VAR audio being heard as well, which has just come in this weekend, just gone. And um, there's a few uh, controversies, and I've got a couple of rants to do as well. Right, so we're back then with Peter and with Graham. Now, uh, Graham, I've got to say, watching quite a bit of Sky Sports for my sins, watching Sky Sports news, and I'm very familiar with seeing a lot of you know the usual typical well, Zoom equivalents um, being broadcast on the screen. And quite often, I've seen a very similar visage to your good self. Uh, have people compared you with Mr. Damon Hill at all, by any chance? Oh, well, that's quite nice. He's a handsome guy. You, you have the same, yeah, you've got kind of like the slight stylish yeah, silver hair, the goatee. Yeah. It's, it's very oh, similar. Yeah, well, that's good. I've never thought of that, no. Um, Do you drive very fast on the roads at all? <laughs> really slowly. Uh, really slowly and really angrily. Uh, <laughs> everybody else is to blame. Uh, I don't Peter know, David Hill wouldn't drive like that either. <laughs> They're all rubbish. What's <laughs> they doing now? You know, yeah. But well, Peter and I, um, Obviously, we, we know you through um, Seagulls over London. You're a London-based um, Brighton fan. You've already given us your story in the past, so we won't go into that. But we've had the pleasure of your company, or I have anyway, on the way down to games a few times on the train. It's all great, and you're season ticket holder, aren't you, as well? Yeah. Um, and it's wonderful, uh, wonderful stuff to be a Brighton fan. You also are a qualified ref, as we mentioned earlier on. So um, well, we won't ask you to go into your backstory on that one either at the moment. But we have got quite a few refing-related. Uh, stories that have come up this year. As with every season, there's some new rules have come in. Um, this season's rules have largely centred around um, the dissent and time-wasting issues. There are other rules that have come in as well. Can you tell us your, your thoughts on those rules, whether you think they're good, laws, rules, whichever you want to call them? Yeah. Well, well, and, well yeah. first of all, uh, I'm an, a, an assessor of referees as well as yeah. a referee, although I don't referee a lot these days because I mostly watch referees and assess them, uh, which is uh, okay. It's quite relaxed and um, that it's not easy to be uh, upgraded after an assessment, but it's not particularly hard either if you're fairly good at what you do. Um, and I do that for Middlesex uh, County Football Association, uh, and I um, used to uh, be a Sussex referee many years ago. Um, but back to your question. I think um, I, I, I said that because it's quite difficult uh, when you're talking to referees um, quite extensively before 
at halftime and after the game uh, about the way they refereed the game and what how they interpret the laws of the game. Um, because the laws of the game haven't changed uh, really radically at grassroots level, but boy have they changed at Premier League level. Um, I just don't know quite how the interpretation of shoves and pushes and shirt pulls and blocking uh, and handball uh, is working in the Premier League. It just is so difficult to really work it out. And I think referees are probably struggling with it as well. And they must go out, uh, Premier League referees must go out uh, before a match thinking, I've really, really got to try and get my head round uh, these law changes and how I interpret them. And I really have to get a lot of help from the AR. Uh, and uh, that's a bit of a shame because referees only, you know, generally only get help from, to some extent, a fourth official, but mainly from their assistants, from their linesmen. So um, to change that all so that you're dependent on someone in an earpiece telling you what they might have seen, that you need to go and look at something or you may be totally wrong, must be really disconcerting. Uh, and it's no, um, in, in, my, in my opinion, it's no... Um, uh, it's pretty obvious that some referees, Anthony Taylor will not do the AR. He doesn't do the AR because he can't stand it. He can't stand uh, the uh, the difficulty of having to interpret a really tough decision on the field of play in a very short time mm. with very limited, um, very limited facilities. And I, I will finish in a second, but i just say that Sky, when they televise a game and they look at decisions, offside, penalties, you name it, late challenges, they're looking at multi-angles with a lot of cameras, hmm. with a lot of technicians in the studio. Um, the VAR are looking at one screen with hmm. one technician who's rolling it back and putting it and looking at it at a different angle on the same screen. And that's why it takes so long. And that's why it's not ideal. And that's why the Premier League, before we get into talking about telling the public what's going on, the Premier League need to spend some money um, on better technical facilities when they look at the other. I mean, I had no idea about that. That is madness. If they're that they're not, the amount of money in the Premier League that they're not providing them with the resources that they need, that's insane. That's, yeah, well, it just makes no sense. What, what, what they're doing is they're providing a, a VAR um, person and a VAR assistant and a technician. Yeah. Um, so there are three people. If you if you go to the big, um, if, you, if you look to the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, you had few technicians and you had a few VAR people, three or four of them. So um, so for bigger games and uh, different uh, organisations, they're putting more people on. But there are too many games, um, obviously, uh, to be watched. At the same time, 
at Stockley Park, and there are only so many studios and so many facilities that mm. PPM and OL um, have available to them. And I think that's a big mistake. Yeah, and as you said, Graham, the uh, everything is is tailored to the standard of Sky's world class. Um, broadcast service you know they've got multi-angles very fast with the editing the picture editing choice of shots how quickly they get the shot from one to another for the viewing pleasure and for obviously for the professionals to commentate on is completely different to what a small number of people who haven't done that as a living for the whole of their lives is is having to do when they're looking at it from a just a refereeing point of view and without the technical skills which is it's uh it's impossible if we're going to be held to those standards um, it's it's obviously going to fall short, isn't it? There, there, there's just too much of a disparity between the two, and the fans will get angry with what they can see in far more detail than than the refs. And there is a time constraint, obviously, on the on on deciding on the decisions. And we'll get on to the latest audio VAR stuff that's being broadcast now, which is uh, based on an experiment they did uh, as a one-off last season, late last season, didn't they, with Howard Webb, who's looking to try and. Uh, demonstrate the process and to show how difficult it is to do things in time constraints which i do have some sympathy with having seen that they brought that in again from last weekend onwards now so they looked at the man city fulham game and we'll talk about that in a minute but uh um but i think it again even with with lots of frenetic decision making going on no one's hanging around pondering anything they are trying to make a decision they're discussing very quickly Ultimately, it still takes a bit too long for me. But anyway, Peter, we'll, we'll get on to the, the Man City Fulham yeah. game. Well, Peter, I was going to say, that was one of the examples I was going to use, because to me, even if you don't have the greatest view, that clearly was offside. I don't understand how he got away with that. But um, I was going to say, I think this backs up what I've been saying for a while and what other people have on the various WhatsApp groups, that I think there should be two separate groups, one referees group and one VAR group. And, you know, there's, there's all this talk about some, you know, like, the Mike Dean thing the other day about it, you know, didn't want to undermine his mate and that sort of thing. And similarly, there's been suggestions that maybe uh, the more inexperienced referees have been a bit, a bit not so sure about overruling or suggesting that, v- that a more experienced official on the pitch goes to VAR. So you, you go, you go over that. There's no, they're different qualifications. You don't need to be fit to be VAR. You don't need to necessarily have the same level of, you know, kind of same eyesight, that sort of thing as, as good as VAR. What you do need though is to well work the technology. And also to be able to like deal with it and also to, you know, know the rules and that's fine. So you can, you can, you're taking a different pool of people. So yeah, I think there should be different people for VAR. I think it's, yeah, it sounds like technology is not up to it. They should make the technology better. And that's the only hope they've got really that make VAR work because at the moment it, there's so many mistakes, almost more than there were before in my view. And Graham, we'll come back to you on the response to that in a minute. But one thing to add to that as well, looking at that Man City-Fulham game, essentially you could see all the rationale and the way that the, the conversation was shown. You can see they've, they've very efficiently gone to talk about this. Is it offside? If so, um, is there any other component parts to it? And then is it interfering with the, with the player? And their, their rationale, when you look at it, if you don't know, if you didn't play the game, or if you didn't have a bit more of a wider view on football, you might look at what's being or hear what's being said and think, oh, that sounds rational. It didn't affect his trajectory, the goalkeeper, because he looked like he was making the movement straight away, etc. But the rule is, it is, is, is he interfering with the goalkeeper's judgment? The, by default, he is, because the goalkeeper 
They, they talk about tenths of seconds with reactions, and the difference between that world-class save and just being a good goalkeeper is about that incredible speed of thought and reaction time. And even though it looks, looking at the screen, as if the goalkeeper has gone straight for the ball and just missed it and hadn't been affected by the player being there, even if that were to be true, even if the goalkeeper later said, yeah, I don't think it was affecting me, which, of course, he wouldn't say, but if he did... You could you can argue that may not be the case, even if he thinks it is, because speed of thought that fractions of a second matter to goalkeepers at the, the elite level, and you have to have at the back of your mind a bit of a, an element of doubt as to whether a contact's being made. The goalkeeper can't guarantee a that that player is offside, even if he thinks he is, and b whether it's going to be given, even if he is offside. So he would have to take into account contacts on the ball. So there's going to be, even if it's he's expecting the player to jump over the ball, which he did do, um, and it seems like he didn't try to play it, you've still got that. That could affect you by just a split second. And that could be the difference with getting a fingertip to that ball. So that's the what the, the players have, have said that. I'm just reiterating what I've heard them say. Um, goalkeepers have said that this week. Uh, and if that's the case, if that's true, then you have to give it as offside, don't you? And, and how Webb has come out and said that particular instance that shouldn't have been allowed that goal. Um, but it's people who are not who haven't presumably haven't played the game to any significant level who have made those decisions. Is that part of the problem? Is it is it that you need a goalkeeper or someone that at least has the rationale that we've just been talking about in their heads when they make those decisions? I can see how I can see how it's a, a very fast paced scenario. It's it's a very quickly moving pieces isn't it with in terms of trying to i think how webb said there were two elements they had to marry up and try and balance into their consideration but it, ultimately if you can't make a decision quickly enough you have to go with the obvious don't you but anyway graham over to you on this one uh, okay so um a lot so, to unpack there uh, i know sorry a couple of points really first of all uh first of all the players are the worst to be referees, ex-players are, are terrible referees generally. They they um, <laughs> they, they okay. tend to err on the basis that there's no such thing as a foul. Uh, you've got to be, <laughs> be take it all, <laughs> give everything, take it, give it back, that sort of thing. Well, that's not what football's about. It might be what it's about for certain players, but they they you know they, I know this is a generalisation, but but this this can really happen. You've really got to. Um, You've really got to study the game and uh, and really work hard to manage a game of football. Uh, and you can't just be sort of laissez-faire. You have to be uh, very, very quick on your decision. You have to be very firm, but you also have to be totally fair. Uh, and if you think it's a foul, you have to give it. And then you, you know, and, and then you, you stand by your decision. And, and that's what refereeing is all about. So... That leads on to VAR uh, and who would be able to judge VAR. Well, I think that you could have a panel uh, of players and referees uh, and they could make a fairly quick decision. But I do believe that in this day and age, particularly the Premier League, offsides should be automated. They really should be. That there's, that you shouldn't have to dwell ages on, on offside. It should be absolutely like tennis. It should be in or out. You know, there's a, there's a, a camera eye. The technology, I'm sure, is there to do it. 
if you you know in every stadium um why not do that which begs the question why do we need assistant referees because at the moment they are in a right mess because they are wandering around giving throw-ins and occasionally pointing to the corner flag they very rarely give fouls sometimes they do but most of the time they're told not to bother uh, and they occasionally give an offside but only in the last resort if it's so obvious that they don't feel that they're going to be undermined by VAR. So I mm. think there's a real um, real issue there about technology working. The other issue, though, is penalty kicks, late challenges, uh, who last touched the ball, that sort of thing, before it went out. Well, that's not that difficult to do. Uh, a referee should be fit and up with play and be able to see things. If they can't see things and they get things wrong, dump them because they're not good enough and get somebody else in that is. I know clubs suffer from this, but my God, clubs have suffered from VAR all over the place with, you know, decisions being overturned, VAR decisions that were fairly obvious, like the offside not being given. Um, in my mind, uh, referees, particularly when they've got to the stage, the top of the Premier League, should be able to give very, very clear and accurate decisions, probably in the 90% pluses, really. Um, they're trained, they're professional, uh, they're intelligent, generally, they're astute, but, um, and they've got there by a real grind. They've had to work really hard to get there. You know, you've got to be fit, you've got to be dedicated. Um, you don't just go there because you're a mate of somebody and you've come from the northeast of England. You go there because, you know, you've done fantastically well at grassroots and county level and national league level, football league level, championship level, and then Premier League. So, mm. um, so they ought to be able to give, you know, a handball. They ought to be able to judge when it's accidental and when it's intentional. And they ought to be able to, you know, uh, decide, uh, quickly. Uh, generally to the, you know, um, so that fans understand. If you take, you know, the current handball rule, I've no idea what to say to uh, a referee if they're watching, you know, um, Premier League football. I know what to say to a referee when they're doing grassroots football, which is don't give handball unless you really think the player's trying to get away with it. In other words, mm. don't give the handball just because somebody shot the ball straight at their eye. Um, just play on. Uh, yeah. it, it's fine. You can justify your decision as being accidental, no intention. Mm. Um, and I, and I, I really wish we could go to that level. In other words, make it simple, you know, uh, but the difficult stuff, the technical stuff, like offsides, whether the ball went over the line or not, maybe whether it's a corner or not. I mean, how many times do we see uh, the ball given over the line for a goal, and yet you think, well, that's gone over for a corner, and the, and the lines been so play on because they've got they can't see through the goalposts and the, and the melee of players. So yeah. let technology do that. You know, it's very simple. With a little chip in a ball, the minute it goes over the white line, it goes buzz to say it's gone over the line, um, yeah. and then you know it's a throw in or a goal kick or a corner. So uh, I think if we could just 
try and get to those levels, life would be so much easier for everybody. Fans, referees, players, the lot. It won't happen, of course, because football doesn't work like that. Yeah, the, the application of the law, uh, the handball law, uh, at a grassroots level, you've, you've just described something that everyone would love to see. If you think someone's trying to get away with something, uh, or if or obviously if they've inadvertently blocked it with their arm on the goal line, I suppose as well. Yeah, they've taken so, advantage. But, they they yeah. might not want to take an advantage, but they might have yeah. naturally tried to take advantage by running out with their arms in the air. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very very stupid thing to do. When yeah, it seems as if that could be applied far more simply. Getting back to basics mm-hmm. in terms of the essence of the law, there. Obviously, there's always with football, there's always going to be a subjective grey area with, with certain things. Did someone try to get away with it? You just said, yeah, there might be a, uh, some scenarios where you're not quite sure if they're trying to get away with it or not. You have to either give the benefit of the doubt one way or the other then, and that's fair enough. And I think football fans will be okay with that by and large, apart from, you know, their very biased views on the day maybe, <laughs> you know, but in, in the heat, heat of the moment aside, they would probably think, okay, that was open to interpretation. But it's when... Lewis Dunk's getting penalised for a penalty. In that, I knew you were going to say that, Peter, weren't you? Ridiculous. He's sliding him with his arms in a natural position. It glances off his back onto his elbow behind him. He's He's got no idea where the ball's going, other than the fact the, the, the player's decided to try and cut it back behind Dunk to avoid being blocked by his sliding block, as it would have been. He's got obviously got no intention to play the ball with his arm. Though, And there's a number of other examples we could give. Though, there yeah. is this, that's what we need to see stop yeah. because that, uh, and it's that about infuriates everyone, doesn't it? It's about interpretation because with the yeah. Lewis Dunk Campbell, it was about him being it being interpreted by VAR that he had made his body big, too big, by putting his arm out. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he needed to do that to to land on the ground yeah. with his elbow to stop himself going flat bang on his back wasn't taken into account. Well, that's... And, and actually, that's... That is, that is not a very clever way of, of looking at things. Um, Plus, I think... A, a, a handball very shortly afterwards where a player just slapped the ball away. He didn't really mean to do it, but it caught him by surprise and it hit him on the arm. I think it was a Chelsea player, maybe. Um, yeah. And uh, it wasn't good. But yeah. It uh... seemed to be accidental. And I thought that was strange because... In my mind, you, you, if you're going to give a penalty for Dunk, you give a penalty for that because they're mm. both handball in that, in that context. I, I agree. And I think that's, um, with, with, this is where I do, I mean, I agree with you that players, you know, they may be not the best people to, uh, you know, to be the interpreters of the rules, but. Well, they uh, Stephen, don't like the rules, yeah, well, yes. Well, Stephen Warnock, I think, is very good with his analysis when he's there on the Monday mornings doing the ref watch thing. He gives the player's perspective in terms of body shape and physicality. And as you've just said there, dunks need to be in that shape to land. Um, I think that's where it could be useful if a player could even, even just giving input rather than being the judge of a situation. If you can give input and say, no, no, that player would have done that because He'd, he would have had to have done that because it's a, a matter of safety with how he lands or trajectory to get the elevation for you know a header or whatever it might be. Um, I think that's where there, there could be some useful input. I agree. I don't think they'd be the best the best suppliers of the law, but that's another matter. But Peter, you were itching to come back in there. No, I mean I was going to originally say Dunn's point, but I was also think it's even weirder with the when, it, when you're sort of attacking these days because I mean. You know, it's a matter of whether you, you know, in certain situations, if you handball it at all, but even, you know, brushes your arm like McAllister against 
Tottenham last year, that sort of thing. It's yeah. disallowed. Yeah. On the other hand, if you can actually handball it, as long as you, well, certainly the rule, I, 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 to be honest, I sometimes don't know if it's like, well, it's changed or not, but certainly the rule was if you pass it to someone after it hits your hand, you actually can score and it's okay. It's just that you can't score yourself or something, something like that. And they, they, they seem to make the rules more difficult. I mean, I actually think handball should be the same at either end. What's the difference between, you know, denying the sh- a shot on goal with your hand when it's in a slight position or scoring with it? It's, it's ridiculous that they've made it two different rules for different ends of the pitch to me. It just makes, makes it more complicated. And the more, and the same with offside, the more complications you have, the more difficult it becomes for referees and for officials. Well, um, handball's always difficult to interpret because um, uh, lots of players accidentally hand, handle the ball because they get themselves into the wrong position and, uh, and, and they're not looking sometimes. The ball hits their hand, completely stops an attack. And you, you, as a referee, you think, if I don't give that, I'll have about, you know, 10 players cursing me and the, you know, the defensive team that's handled the ball will probably not care whether you give a handle or not, unless it's a penalty. Um, and uh, so you often give uh, penalties on the basis that uh, you, uh, the element of really sort of, of, of doubt that they probably didn't mean to handle the ball, but they, they've really screwed it up for the attacking side by mm. handling the ball, and they're not very good players to let that happen. So there are sort of, um, that, that really doesn't, uh, or in the old days, that didn't really apply the laws of the game. Um, hmm. The laws of the game said there must be an intention to handle the ball. Um, I mean, if a ball's hit at you very, very hard and you put your hands up, at, uh, uh, you know, in front of your face, as you may well remember Glenn Murray doing. I was just going to say, yeah. Wednesday, uh, and got sent off for it, I think, um, for a second uh, bookable offence, uh, I think. Uh, or or maybe stopping a uh, a goal. I think it was a straight um, red. I think it was stopping a goal from Tuesday. Although I'm sure there were players on the line because uh, yeah. it was a big kick. But um, that that aside, I felt at the time that that was a very harsh penalty because what are you going to do? But the fact is that it was probably about seven or maybe eight meters away when the players shot. Self preservation. Murray Murray probably should have got out of the way. Um, whether that meant it went straight in the goal or not is another matter. Uh, he probably couldn't have headed it because it, it was a, he probably didn't expect the Sheffield Wednesday player to smash the ball directly at his face from seven meters. So he didn't get out of the way and he instinctively put his hands up, handled the ball. Well, you would probably have to give a penalty there because you would turn around and say, you know what? Um, you should have got out of the way. And Murray mm. would have said, how could I get out of the way of that? And you just say, well, you should have got penalty kick. But whether you would have sent a player off for that in the olden days, yeah. um, I doubt. I doubt. That's my problem with that decision, was the yeah. sending. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't a problem in the end, though. It's like, but well, probably one of the best nights at the Annex, that. Exactly. And, well, there is that. <laughs> and they missed the penalty, and we were all delighted. But if they scored the penalty that we'd lost, it would have been awful. But there you go. I mean, and it would have been based on the referee interpretation of that law which was deemed at the time to be perfectly okay. And it yeah. probably was in hindsight, but it was a bit tough. Um, you know, you'd have you'd have called the referee very soft if he hadn't given a penalty, or probably biased actually. Um well, a cheat people would have called him wrongly. Um 
And if he hadn't sent him off, maybe Wednesday would have gone ballistic at Murray not being sent off for denying a uh, an obvious soul-scoring opportunity. Yeah. Well, moving swiftly on, um, there's there's one damning condemnation and two massive rants I need, I need to get off, off my chest, and you'll feel free to join in with these as well. Before we get on to that, one player uh, who I'm wondering whether you would have liked to have reffed him at any point, um, he, he was squeaky clean gentleman of the field, of course, all the way through his career, Roy Keane. Um, yeah. He was uh, head-butted, apparently, uh, while representing... Uh, in his, his media capacity, uh, alongside Micah Richards, who's a big fan of Roy Keane, sounds like a bad m- time to headbutt a player who's got a reputation for being a bit spiky anyway. I'm not quite sure what happened there. I think uh, he irritated somebody of the opposition su- supporting affiliation or whatever it was. I'm not, I'm not sure of the details. Crazy stuff. Um, would you like to have um, dealt with the likes of Mr Keane during your time, Graham? Uh, no, no, it would have been really, really. Uh, I, I did deal with a few players at a fairly high level who were really difficult. I once had a player that, was, that used to just stand in, in front of me every time there was stoppage in play, right next to me, right in front of me, just to annoy me. And I found really? it really intimidating. Shit, housing the ref. That's housing the ref. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard of getting in the ref's ear, but not shit housing. Yeah. That's that's so quite. I would step away, you know, to get out of the way, so I could see see the ball and see through the player, if you like, see around the player. You just step in front of me again. And there's not <laughs> nothing really in the laws of the game to say a player can't do that. So I asked yeah. him to move, and he said no. Uh, this, and it's... then, and then, of course, you start thinking, I'm going to caution you for ungentlemanly conduct. Uh, and uh, and that's when you get into the, the if you're a strong referee, I'm not saying it was particularly, but if you're a strong referee, you start to get really heavy on players, and um, and you uh, you actually um, show cards, uh, even if even if it's just you know just to shut them up. But mm. the uh, the best piece of advice I ever got was um, single out the Roy Keane, go to Roy Keane and talk to him, say. You're having a really good game. Or did you see uh did you see um the uh AC Milan game the other night? Things like that. Or well, I gave or the other uh, method is uh, I gave a throw in there just now, but I'm not sure I got that right. I think I, I think it might have been your throw, not the opposition's. But you know, I thought you'd like to know that. And they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do and what to say, and they suddenly they don't become your friend, but they suddenly think I just don't, I can't be bothered with that. But if you go through a game being poker-faced and giving decisions and saying shut up uh, all the time uh, and going, that's it, I don't care, that's it, I've given it, and not explaining things, um, they'll, they'll get to you. They'll, they'll say, what do you think you're doing? You know, And they'll start questioning your abilities and skills in oh, a way so- that doesn't get them sent off. Adopting mind games of Mind Games United. Sorry, Manchester United. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, quite, quite like that. That's good. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting technique which uh, I, w- I was told about very late, never really put into action. But mm. I, I suddenly, you know, it dawned on me what a clever move that would be. Yeah, that's very good. Find the difficult one, the one that's always ranting and, and, <laughs> and questioning and get into their head. Because they're going to otherwise it's influence their team. You know, easy going and polite and friendly way, not in an aggressive or confrontational way. And then mm. they get bewildered by it and don't think they think, why, why, why is he always talking to me? 
you know, leave me alone. And they go away. And they don't don't go near you then. You know, yeah. they don't want another conversation about whether it was a corner or a goal kick or that's a good kick they've got on, isn't it? I, I like <laughs> that with that kick. It's really good. <laughs> Oh, I love that. There was one one final thing on refereeing before we get on to my rant um, as well. There was I don't know if you saw this week. There was a Swedish referee who's tried to identify and interpret a, a loophole in the law to do with um, free kicks. Uh, I think he was saying if something to do with the contact when the first contact a player is onside, uh, and then if they move into an offside position and no additional contact has been made, they're onside. So the notion was he plonks the ball on his foot balances it on his foot, player then goes into onside position and he scoops the ball, having not lost contact with the ball, and it could be onside. And then I think there was a there was a reply from IFAB saying, well, the laws are a broad church and then uh, in terms of like, the overall rule, and then there's a matter of spirit of the game and interpretation. Yes, right. And he said there's a way we could loophole our way out of that. Yeah. But I thought it was quite entertaining that they uh, yeah. came up with that. I think it was, I think it was Swedish. Um, it might have been Norwegian, actually. Yeah. Not quite sure. but, yeah. I, mean, I mean, the the spirit of the game was often about, uh, you know, interpretation and, and a referee being strong enough to, to, to use the spirit of the game to stop things going on. I mean, yeah. as a player, I used to think it was really clever as a striker for a while, shouting keeper's ball so that they might the defence might pass the ball back to the keeper. Or pass it back to the keeper and yeah. then I'd stand next to the keeper and score. And of course it wouldn't I wouldn't be offside because uh, it had been played to me by a defender. But a referee got wise to that and booked me and said yeah. this uh, gamesmanship, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, it's not in the laws of the game, so it's 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 in the spirit. Of the the same with suddenly shouting next to someone, screaming yeah. to, to, yeah. to the point of disorientating yeah. them. Again, yes. it's against the laws, the spirit. Sorry, the spirit of the game. So yeah. the game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I did ask that to somebody once. Not scream at someone, <laughs> on the pitch, you know, because screaming goes on all the time, particularly when someone gets down. That's true. Right. Okay. Damning condemnation and two rants. Damning condemnation. We're not going to dwell on this matter, but Burnley came back into the Premier League this season and they've changed their style. Uh, Vincent Company, lovely guy, seems to come across very well. Obviously a very good coach. He started in Belgium, got the job with Burnley, got them up as uh, playing a much better brand of football winning the title, getting into the Premier League. Congratulations to him. They've started, and I don't want to I don't want to sort of you know, make too much of this, but they've they've started to in, in, uh, to to include black players in their team, which is interesting. It's a bit of a change from their usual modus operandi. One or two exceptions aside, so everything about Burnley is different. Better brand of football, more inclusive style of of team. Vincent Company, of course, as well, being a black manager uh, as the coach, um, everything's great. Except same old, same old when it comes to the fans. There was some very scummy behaviour. At one of the games, I think, um, very early in the season, well, we were already over early in the season, but I think there was... Yeah, they've only played three games. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it was the, um, the is it the first game of the season? Yeah, the City game, somebody invaded the pitch, didn't they, or something? Or... Yeah. yeah, and there was a lot of scummy behaviour going on. There was uh, some trouble, I think, as well. And then the Tottenham game, apparently a lump of concrete was thrown at the team coach hitting it. Thankfully, nobody was injured and or harmed. Um Again, it's, some things never change, do they? And I know this isn't every Burnley fan, but they do have a horribly scummy reputation. It's very disappointing and so tediously predictable to to hear a, another issue coming up. So t- twice in three home games, 
the yeah, fans that behave themselves. Plus, I think you have to be careful about the, the lump of concrete because you, you, you know, you, it, they probably weren't. They were probably kids. They were probably, um, uh, they probably weren't at the game. They hmm. probably knew the score and knew which way a team coach would come. Yeah. Which doesn't make, you know, you don't have to be very clever to work out that if the team coach is going back to Manchester Airport, it's got to go on the M62 or something. Hmm. Um, the timing would probably mean that they hadn't had enough time to leave the ground, get to wherever it was, yeah. find a piece of concrete and throw it over the bridge. They may well have done, but... Um, it's... Well, there might be fans that weren't attending, I suppose. Based, based on the last time in Burnley, they could have taken the concrete with them to the, ga- the ground. I didn't get any bag searched last time I went there. <laughs> they could well be. I mean, I, I do, I mean, I think I told you, I remember when we won at Newcastle uh, in 1979 uh, to, to get promotion. Um, you know, the, the same thing happened to the supporters coach. Yeah, we talked about this just on Tuesday, weren't we? From the bridge on the A1. So I think, um, and I don't think it caused any damage, but it was really dangerous. I don't think that for the life of me that they were uh, Newcastle fans that were at the game. I think they they, mm. they knew there would be football supporter coaches driving down this particular dual closure. It's as simple as that. And, you know, it's probably the same kids that would go on those funny wheelies on their, on their bicycles, you know, up in the air in the middle of the high street in front of yeah, Everyone does that now, don't they? What yeah, the hell's that all about? <laughs> and, and that's the sort of, I just think that that's an odd thing to do. But maybe if you're 12 and a bit leery and not particularly pleasant, um, you might want to throw a piece of concrete on it. Really might. Not what I did when I was a kid, I have to say. But I, I tell you a point, there might not have been fans, or at least not regular fans, uh, and they probably weren't at the game. But it's still, you know, locals in an area doing something like that, whatever the age. Well, which it's, it's unusual, isn't it? It kills someone. Age, but it's probably, it probably is something to do with, um, you know, local kids, I think. Yeah, fair but, enough. But, okay. Saying that, Burnley fans are not pleasant and they, they have horrible chance and they probably had to rein those in. And, uh, it's just a matter of time, I think, before a company gets sacked and they bring in some bloke that will thump the ball from the back. They can, they can swap with um, Everton. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. They could, and they both would benefit from that, wouldn't they? Probably. Company would be nearer to Manchester and Sean yeah. Dyche will be back in his, uh, his spiritual place. start telling the players, yeah, thump the ball forward and this is what you do. And I don't want to hear it, what you would like to do. You're doing what I do, and it, you know. Right. Yeah, grow six inches like you're not starting up front. Rants. I'm expecting support from, from you guys in this one, but I don't know, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, two rants um, before we round off. Spanish football scenario and Jordan Henderson. Spanish football, first of all, what an absolute shambles. I think we can all agree, whatever you think of this, a total shambles of a situation. Um, of course, we've got uh, Hermoso, who was the uh, one of the key players at the Spanish World Cup for the, for the women's team. They won the tournament. Uh, all the players were embraced by Rubiales. There was some inappropriate, according to the, the players, um, behaviour, kissing on the lips while grabbing the back of the head. It does seem a bit 
weird to me. I know there's cultural anomalies one country to another, but obviously the people from that culture, from Spain, the women involved, didn't think it was uh, a matter of appropriateness at all. They've had an issue with it. They've had an issue with Spanish. It, it seems initially it was going to be to do with the coach. What's his name? Vild, Vilder, is it? Yeah. Um, I think it, it seems my, my understanding of it was it was more they had an issue with him prior in the build-up to the World Cup when 15 people st- stepped away and then they were eventually persuaded, some of them to come back. Eight of them were persuaded to come back. Three of them were then picked. And they went on, despite those adver- those adversities, to win the World Cup with, with a coach they didn't like. Yeah. It seems there might be more to the original issues than has originally met, uh, had met the eye. But also, we've now got this situation that's happened in the celebrations on the pitch. You know, the inappropriate behaviour. Clearly, it was deemed as inappropriate by the people for whom it was acted upon. And Rubiales has dug his heels in. He's done a Wolf, Wall Street-style defiant speech, uh, which was very weird, very unsavoury, with a captive audience applauding him, most of the audience, including the coach. The coach was already on sticky ground. Um FIFA then have subsequently suspended Rubiales for 90 days. Mm. And they've, uh, the Spanish Federation have subsequently appointed a replacement called, I think Nacho is name, who apparently is also of the same set, whatever that means. Uh, so not necessarily an improvement. However, that guy has sacked Vilda from the coaching role which is interesting. He's now up in arms, complaining it's unfair um, and that things have been judged on football. He can understand if he's done something wrong, he'd get sacked, but judged on behaviour, he doesn't think it should be. There is, an, uh, there is an inherent issue in Spanish football, a macho culture in, within the Spanish Federation and within the coaching setup here, clearly, because there is a major, major rift between the female playing staff and those male figures of authority within the Spanish game. Um, we've had the farcical scenario of the mother, Rubiales' mother, going on hunger strike in church um, over the, the witch hunt, the inhumane witch hunt of her son. You know, a, a typical mummy's boy scenario here, we're talking here. And I, I found the whole thing so unsavoury. What an absolute own goal of all own goals this is for anybody connected with the Spanish Federation and the coaching staff um, because they've just made things worse and worse and worse for themselves by digging their heels in, denying they've done anything wrong. Um, Rubiales giving a really, really weak apology but with that classic hook, I'm sorry if I've offended anybody. I didn't expect I had, but sorry if I have, was the general vibe. How many times have we heard that? I'm sorry if I've offended somebody. Yeah. Suggests that they don't think that someone no, should have been offended. Yeah. You say I, all the time, Russ, don't you, on the pod? I do. That's another matter, Peter. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the two, my two things that are so, I mean, one, I, I genuinely, how how inept an organisation are you that FIFA has to step in and act for you in a scandal? I mean, more, FIFA, who literally are rife with scandals all the time and do absolutely nothing about it. They have to, they've been the ones who take action here. I mean, that is hilarious. And the second thing is, just the real tragedy of all this is, no one really talks about the fact that Spain won the World Cup deservedly. I mean, obviously I wanted England to win that game, but Spain were brilliant. And the way they behaved and the way they, after, you know, all, all the scandals going on and then losing 4 0 to Japan in the, in the group stage when they could have, you know, fallen apart. The way they recovered from that to come through and win the tournament has been completely lost because of this one dickhead 
yeah. being backed up by a lot of other dickheads. And it's, like, that, it's, it's, it's completely overshadowed the football, and it's a real shame. Yeah, not only that, but the, the success story itself already was an interesting story because yeah. when we, the run-up to the game, I didn't know anything about this issue, actually. I'd not heard anything about it. And they were talking about it in the run-up to the game, maybe the day, couple of days before, and then in the, the build-up on the match day. And my wife was watching it with me, and she said, ooh, they've got a reason to win this um, because they've obviously got issues with the hierarchy and with the coaching staff. They've got a reason to win this. And she was convinced they would win, and I agree with her at the time i thought uh shit i think you're right so there is that there is that rising above adversity elements of the story as well as the general success of winning a world cup so there's a magnificent story there at that stage but it's, and it's all been destroyed by the actions by... of one person and then the the ineptness of the organization afterwards it's, yeah. it's just really sad incredible nacho the guy that's been that's come in to replace um rubialis for the 90 days he's mates with seferin of the UA, of uefa who are an inept yeah. and pathetic organization anyway yeah. they're mates they're it's all he's a vice president at uefa i think the yeah. key to all this is if you think about okay so the football association gets a lot of bad press and has had many many times but when it came to national coaches, when it came to Hoddle and Allardyce, it re- it did move pretty quickly. And yeah. Um, yeah. and and I think you know the the football association isn't just one person; it's a, it's a, a governing body, and that that governing body uh, would not would you know would not tolerate. It wouldn't yeah. say to the chair of the football association, "Well, it's down to you now. Whatever you want to do, just don't do something." So I'm amazed that the Spanish FA haven't sat round well, a table and said, this is intolerable, we are sacking him, um, you know, you can be in charge if you like the system, on a, but you must apply for the job. Um, I think the, impl- the implication, Graham... Of, you know, and if he takes us to court, so be it, we'll go to court because he won't have a leg to stand on. I think the implication, Graham, is that um, they they don't have jurisdiction to sack him. The only way they could get him out if he doesn't resign is for the Minister of Sport to intervene, which probably is about well, to happen, I would imagine. That would have happened in England, wouldn't it? It That's would have happened in England, yeah, definitely. If, if, um, if had, had said, I'm got, not going, uh, you know, it would have been like European Super League. It, 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 you know, it, if there's something big enough where the public start getting up, yeah. upset... The paradox is, the football matter, then the government starts to get involved. The paradox is that represents government intervention, which of course FIFA has against its statutes, which is which is ironic, isn't it? As well, but uh-huh. actually, it would be the right thing to do in that circumstance. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy situation. It's madness, isn't it? And they're they're damaging. I think, unfortunately, I I think Spain, I wouldn't say I've I've had a lot of interaction with Spanish people. I've met many people. I've been there. I quite like a lot of elements of the culture. And, of course, their history is very interesting that Franco was still in charge until the mid-70s. So they they are a relatively young nation in terms of their current incarnation. Mm -hmm. But when something like this happens, it makes me think of things that I hadn't thought of about how backward it can be in some regards it's really bad and it's painted on a global scale for everyone to see it's the very worst case of doing your dirty washing in public isn't it this it's absolutely mm-hmm. awful yeah. Yeah. and there's so many great people in spain and i can absolutely nobody in the spanish federation as any of them but um 
it, it's just baffling that they would undermine themselves in this great moment of jubilation. And they've created a global farce. Maybe, I know Alan said, uh, of, of this parish said that he thinks it's gone out of all proportion with the news coverage and things. But and, and I can sort of see his point. But in the end, you know, if someone digs their heels in and this story just gains traction. Yeah, in a way, that's the story, isn't it? The story is the intransigence and the difficultness of the Spanish FA and the incompetence generally now. It's not, you know, if they just acted quickly the next day and said, you can't do that, you've been sacked. They would have that would have ended the story probably at that point. I mean, it's been was almost a month since the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's still the main headline for a lot of sporting it's insane. Like, it's like, yeah, it, it, they just act quickly and it doesn't become a story. Yeah, exactly. And now the latest thing is that she's now filed for uh, to, to press legal charges against him. She wouldn't have done that if he'd have apologised, albeit emptily, and then resigns. I yeah. think, and if there'd been some suggestion of changes within the organisation, that probably would have been the end of it. But because he's digging his heels in, she's very quite rightly gone, OK, you're digging your heels in, I'm going to dig my heels in. This is a sexual assault, so we're now going to make this a legal matter because you haven't you haven't um, shown any contrition and you haven't acted in accordance with... Didn't he threaten to sue her at one point as well? I mean, that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. threatening legal action against her for insinuating something that didn't happen. And they, they've tried to change the narrative. It's very, very unpleasant. The way it, the whole Me Too movement, this is a, a almost a classic example of that, isn't it? With this mm-hmm. trying to change the narrative. No, no, you didn't do this. You were consenting. Telling somebody what they yeah. were doing. They clearly it's it's the whole fake news, like Donald Trump sort of thing, isn't it's it? Truth. If you just say uh-huh. it's like, it's fake news constantly. It's, it, people just believe you after a while because yeah. they're like they don't know what to believe. No, he's trying to turn America into a tin pot um, dictatorship for uh, for five minutes, didn't he? When all that yeah. stuff was going perhaps, on. Uh, perhaps an intrepid reporter at the Evening Argus could interview Ansu Fati about his opinion of this all. Oh, that's a good call. Spanish international, of course. Um, I would imagine it'd be no comment, really. Yeah. There's been criticism, hasn't there? I mean, 81 members of the female, uh, well, the, the eligible to be uh, Spanish international uh, set have all yeah. said they will refuse to play while he's in charge. He's still digging his heels in. He's still yeah. not resigned. Yeah. Incredible situation. When you've got over 80 professional footballers of the highest quality in Spain, and they've got a very wide range of good qualities there, are all saying they're not going to play while he's in charge. You must be a, think, it, surely you're thinking maybe I've overstepped the mark here. It Something must be a bit weird if you're, you know, uh, Rebellas and you're you're going into work uh, because you haven't resigned. You're going into your office, at which probably you know his assistant is now, and you're saying, "Well, you go, you know, well I'll go in this office here. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm I'm still I'm still the you know the head of the FA. You're not." <laughs> Well, I am, I am the head of it. No, I'm the interim head of it. No, you're not. I'm the head of it. It must be. <laughs> Sounds like a Python <laughs> sketch, doesn't it? Yes. It would be very funny, wouldn't it? It would be, yeah. And unless the Minister of Sport intervenes, 90 yeah. days are going to go by and he's going to come back to office. And yeah. they've got games coming up imminently. Um, who are they going to be playing? They're going to be playing their 81st to 92nd choice starting 11 on <laughs> Well, I'm not even sure they'll do that because no one's going to agree to do it. They're literally, yeah, everyone, not. even if people don't necessarily agree, they're going to look at it and go, I'm going to get so much backlash that I just don't want to do it. 
Yeah, it's going to look bad, isn't it? If you're the eighty-second best tennis yeah. player, you look like a real dick. If you're, if you're going, yeah, you're like, oh, I got, a, I, I did amazingly when I was young. I got a cap for Spain, and then the you know, grandkids look it up and they go, "Oh, that's because no one else would play because, of, <laughs> yeah, because of sexual assaults, and you still played." There's not much to well, boast about, really. I don't think it was sexual assault, really. So I, I was prepared to play, you know. So that yeah, was, that's maybe the wrong word, but it's, it was just it's, one match. I did get fifteen quid for it. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's not really sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. uh, oh, I mean, it's it's so mad. I'm sorry it? if you're offended by me playing. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, we won't dwell on that anymore because I'm sure the story is still unfolding and there'll oh, be yeah. more. To oh, yeah, he'll go, won't he? He'll He's got to go. It's, it's hard to see what else they could possibly do in the end. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, you know. It's standing... off, I suppose. That's what it's about, isn't it? It's like a guy standing on a burning ship with no one else around him going, yeah, I'm still the captain. <laughs> you know, eventually that ship's going into the water. Yeah. And at least he won't burn anymore. He'll just he'll <laughs> cool off a bit as he as he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Anyway, um, moving swiftly on, the final round. Lovely analogy there, Russ. Thank you, thank you. That's better than my usual, actually. In other words, it was less than awful. Um, So the final round, and it's another one, and feel free to join in on this one, Jordan Henderson. Mm. Uh, Jordan Henderson, we we have flagged this up before, and I've had a rant about it before. Um, He was championing the cause of LGBTQ rights. Uh, He was having a lot of communications uh, with uh, Liverpool, uh, Liverpool supporters during his time there. He was there for a number of years. His reason to want to move on from Liverpool is fair enough. No one person really made it sound like they wanted to keep him into the longer term. He was still under contract, but you could see it, it wasn't going anywhere forwards. And his statement subsequently has suggested that he didn't have any better options in terms of there, were, there wasn't a decent offer from the Premier League or any of the other major leagues. Don't know if that's true or not, but his it option was... It would have been Sunderland, wouldn't it? Toddlers, yeah, of his heart and all that. Yeah. 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 Well, that's definitely not Premier League, that's for sure. Anyway, so he's opted to go to Saudi Arabia. He signed a deal. He's not reacted in any way to the very snidey, unpleasant um, signing announcement where they greyed out the rainbow flag, which is a real two fingers up to him and everybody else who he's been supporting in the past. He didn't react to that at all. He didn't react to any criticism from the LGBTQ community or anybody else in the media for a few weeks. And then he was called up to the England squad. So he preempted the fact that he was clearly he was going to get asked about it. So he took the initiative and 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 approached the media and spoke to people and did some interviews. Fair enough in that respect. But his Arguments are pathetic, absolutely pathetic. I'm going to read the statement here. He said, I can understand the frustration. I can understand the anger. I get it. Does he really? All I can say around that is that I'm sorry that they feel like that. Again, this is this, this language, this semantics thing, isn't it? I'm sorry they feel like that as if they shouldn't feel like that, but I'm sorry they do. I'm sorry that this doesn't quite marry. He says, my intention was never ever to hurt anyone. My intention has always been to help causes and communities where I felt that they have asked for my help. People will see this club come with loads of money and he's just gone. Yeah, I'm going. When in reality, that wasn't the case at all. People can believe me or not, but in my life and my career, money has never been a motivation, ever. That's a separate sentence, the word ever, by the way. Uh, Don't get me wrong. When you move, the business deal has to be tight. You have to have financials. You have to feel wanted. You have to feel valued. 
And money is a part of that, but that wasn't the sole reason. Uh, He also went on to say, I can't promise anything, but what I can do is sit here and say, I have my values and beliefs, and I strongly believe that me playing in Saudi Arabia is a positive thing. Um, And there's one final bit, which he says, when I was making the decision, the way that I tried to look at it was, I felt as though by myself not going, we could all bury our heads in the sand, pardon the pun, and criticise different cultures and different countries from afar, but then nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to change, which implies that he thinks he's somehow doing good by going over there, having had his previous opinions, which he didn't question the mocking of when he signed and they did the publicity signing. Peter, you want to get in on this, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) I I thought you might. (laughs) I thought the interview was pretty, yeah. I thought the interview actually itself was quite weak as well. So to me, the first question would have been, and the only question would have been, do you not feel like a massive hypocrite? And he didn't actually use the word hypocrite and it's like that. He's a massive, massive hypocrite to me. It's like, you can't campaign for, for LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus rights and then go to a country where you could be executed for being gay. That's just absolutely ludicrous. And it's like, I mean, I don't think any of the players should go there. I think the whole thing's pretty distasteful anyway. Um, Saudi Arabian League and the, the yeah, the what, what's happened with it. And yeah, the idea that they want to get into your Champions League and want to get into that sort of thing is disgraceful. Um, but. Putting that aside, when you've had the, you've, had, you've you know, you've supposedly, have, you know, campaigned on that side like Jordan Henderson has, to then go and do that, it's basically just a two fingers up at all the people you've been campaigning with and fighting for this thing for. Yeah, no for him to, him to have even the thought that he might change the, the views that thousands of years held or like whatever, you know, in, with by their re- religious faiths and that sort of thing, it's just hilarious. I mean, the idea that he might change any thought in anyone's mind over there is just. Crazy. No, all that's going to happen is they're not going to allow him to say anything. And if he does say anything, he'll get arrested probably briefly or or quietly taken aside and told, do not say anything like that again. Exactly. By saying nothing, he's bent over and taken it, hasn't he, with that rainbow grey down there alone. That alone. And 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 this is why I love beating Newcastle so much last weekend. Yeah, It's just like, you know, it's just like everything that's wrong with football is is state's ownership to me. City, yeah. Newcastle, Paris Saint-Germain, all of it, it's just disgusting. And it should be absolutely be banned, in my view. I mean, um, Graham, if I can bring you in on this, Graham, because we, we went to Seagulls Over London this week, and we had an interesting interview uh, of guests, guests, I should say. Kevin Miles, who's the chief executive of the FSA, many people would have seen him talking about uh, things around England tournaments. He's a regular, he's a top capper in the, the England uh, set up and Thomas Concannon, I think his name was, wasn't it? Who's this, uh, a mate of his, also a Geordie, also a Newcastle fan. And I think in a position of some significance in the FSA as well. And they were good guys, really interesting debate, had a good chat. They were asked about their affiliation with Newcastle and what they thought about the Saudis. And they said that they don't agree with it. Um, you know, they find it unpleasant. But they did pose the question, where do you draw the line? And I think that's a fair enough question to make. But when when you've got something like this, it's it's difficult because it, obviously with, with Newcastle, they're a bunch of fans supporting a club and someone's swanned in, taken over the club. What do you then do? What do you then think? How do you react when someone's imposed themselves on your club? It's difficult. It's not easy, I have to say. Even Shibo, who's ranting on the match day special at the weekends, said, you know, it is difficult for the Newcastle fans because they're desperate for glory. They are a big club. They should be doing better than they have done. But then you've got, yeah. when you go to Saudi Arabia, 
such as Jordan Henderson and very many other people besides. But the issue with Jordan is, of course, the fact that he championed LGBT rights very specifically, which the others, such as party man Neymar and everyone else, didn't. When you go to Saudi Arabia, that's a particular statement, isn't it? If you're a Newcastle fan supporting your team, I think you can still go and support the team and you can feel uncomfortable about Saudi. But if you go to Saudi Arabia to play your football, that's a whole different ball But also, game. if you go dressed up as a shake, if you go dressed up as a shake, though, for the games, then yeah, you'll those guys are in well. They're dickheads. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I, I think the... Um, I thought it was interesting what Kevin Miles uh, and his colleagues had to say um, last week about that. And I, I had a, a certain amount of sympathy for them, really. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go goes any any football club that wants to be big and um, you know bar with the exception of Brighton although many people wrongly I think sort of said well Tony Bloom gets his money from gambling you know um, and which is not entirely true uh, the, the, the problem I think with footballers is, is and this is the difficulty is they really uh, for Henderson he was a pretty left-wing club with ideally with sort of um, politically correct inverted commas ideals uh, as a football club um, I've always felt a bit hard done by in the shadow of, of, of you know real problems uh, that they faced over the years um, and and in a way uh, footballers I think um, probably need to think about whether they're going to be a spokesperson and whether they can just dissolve quietly into the background and let the clubs do the talking rather than the players. Um, and, and that applies to their agents as well. I know mm. we want to hear from stars about certain things, but, uh, I, I'm, I think, I think they should probably do everything quietly. If they, you know, if they want to give money to charities, they should do it and not tell people they're giving money to charities. They should just, just mm. do it and feel good about it. Unless you're going to have the courage of your convictions, regardless yeah, of any. Yeah. But, but, you know, if you're going to go to Saudi Arabia, you probably have to come out and say, do you know what? Uh, yeah, I've got some issues with Saudi Arabia, but I would need to make my, my family secure. Yeah, he would have been more respected if he just said that. That is fantastic at this stage of my career. And it's as simple as that. And you might hate me for it. And I'm sorry if you feel that, but I need to look at, you know, at, um, at, at uh, financial security at, at my age. And people would just go, you're probably a multi-millionaire already. So you don't, you could retire now and still be comfortable till you yeah. yep. drop dead. But, um, why players don't do that, you know, Southgate got himself into a mess the other day as well, I thought. You know, yes. He didn't want to uh, talk about politics, and uh, and yet he finds himself having to talk about politics. He was, I thought he was naive not to appreciate that would come up. He seemed yeah. quite surprised by yeah. it. And, I mean, it was a really obvious question to ask. Yeah. I, I don't understand why it wasn't, why, why he didn't know it was going to come up. And are we at the stage where he could have actually started to exclude Jordan Anderson from the team? Based on his age, 
you can actually you you could quite conveniently say to Jordan behind the scenes, look, this is going to be a firestorm. We don't like what you've done, and unfortunately, we think you're unlikely to get back in the team. Now, I know that's cutting off a an avenue, but you could do that if you wanted to. It probably isn't a firestorm, is it? That's the thing. It's probably something which will come and go. I mean, mm. you know, but you'll go you'll go to Wembley. Uh, watch England or Henderson might play and he will not get booed uh, because 75, 80% of the fans there will go storm the teacup, you know. Um, they were just like they wouldn't boo Newcastle players playing for England. Um, mm. And they wouldn't expect Newcastle players to have to justify being picked for England because they play for a club. You know, Eddie Howe's the same, isn't it? I don't want to talk about politics. Yeah. Uh, I'm here to run a football club. Henderson hmm. should have done the same. I don't want to talk about politics. I'm here to play professional football. Uh, I got an offer I couldn't refuse. Thank you. And if it's in England, you are. It is a different scenario, isn't it? Because you you can have multi ownership. Sainsbury's have got part ownership. Saudi apparently, you know. Yeah. So what do you do? Do you stop shop, shopping in Sainsbury's? Yeah. There are. I can see yeah. the point about you know where do you draw the line. But when when it's something as ostensibly ridiculous and, and offensive as that. You know, uh, when when they're mocking the the rainbow flag thing, you think that's that's gone too far. Yeah, I, I didn't know I, they were going to do that. But, I think I'd yeah. have probably respected Henderson more if he just said, "I got an offer beyond my wildest dreams yeah. to play in this league, where my basically my family for the next hundred years will be able to live off." Yeah. You know, yeah. if, if he'd said that. People would have, I mean, I'd have still not really respected him, but at least they'd have been like, well, at least he's honest. Yeah, so it's not, I, I oh, it's not all about money. What other reasons did you possibly go to the Saudi Arabian League, which is such a pointless league compared to the, the league you could have played in? They've still, the spent, they've still spent less money than the Premier League. They still have very, very small numbers of star players in comparison yeah. to this stage. The only reason is money. And if, as you said, if you said, look, I do hold by my beliefs, but when all said and done, I've Compromised it for money, and I'm going to enjoy yeah. trying to, the new challenge. Someone made the point he, did, he wasn't really available. This one, no one really talked about him being available. I read that people were saying somewhere, and I it might be on Twitter, I read things like that, or on one of the WhatsApp groups. But we got Milner, who was like five, six years older than him. Yes, he was a free transfer, but he's playing quite a key part for a. For us, in a, a, who a look, you know, got top six last year, got to Europe. Henderson could have got an equivalent move, got paid a significant amount of money still, you know, and so it, it basically, you know, and played in a proper league rather than the embarrassment that is the Saudi league where you, just think you can throw money. Far, what, what would you call it? It's obviously not a farmers league. What's it called? A camels league? I don't know. What, there's got to be some equivalent say, expression, doesn't there? For this, I don't know. What what, what would that be? <laughs> Dare we even ask? I think. Uh, I think. Possibly, interestingly, I wonder if Henderson was inferring, probably wasn't, but I might think he was, that by him and other star players going to the Saudi Arabian leagues, uh, league, that more would follow, and more would follow in order to make it comparable with other European leagues, potentially. Hmm. But I, I don't think I think mainly at the moment it's over the it's players who are mainly over the hill with a, a few exceptions there was a really young player is it Ve- Vega or something like that from Spain who went who's yeah. supposed to be really good and I yeah, think he's but... the only one really who's coming who's a real like young talent everyone else has been 
basically a past it, I'd say now. Yeah, but Peter, if you were starting to build so that you would attract, let's say, a player like Enciso not going to the Premier League, but mm. straight to Saudi Arabia to play in competitive football because the money was fantastic and the standard had improved immensely and that they were playing, you know, against not European teams, but top Asian teams, maybe, and then they would have a chance at the World Club Championship and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and still be playing international. But the thing was that, you know, that you've got this fantastic league suddenly coming from nowhere, the equivalent of maybe La Liga one day, okay? And then all these players are saying, yes, of course we're going to play in Saudi Arabia. But, you know, we wouldn't be playing in Saudi Arabia if they hadn't dropped their authoritarian uh, laws about mm. LGBTQ. And, um, and in a way, uh, that's just pathetic, isn't it? And naive, because mm. it's not going to happen. But I wonder if that's the goal and that players and maybe agents are being told, do you know where it's baby steps, but we're going to, the regime will change only when we become westernised like, you know, we mm. have Premier League football and we have uh, wonderful facilities, you know, uh, we're a tourist resort, a bit like the Emirates, but, you know, and everybody wants to come and, yes, hello, yes, and we like gays too. I wonder hmm. if that's what the it's all about at the end of the day, he said. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. What I will say is that Jordan Henderson has come out of this looking very bad indeed. It's awful, really, at this stage. The it's week- up there with the interview that Prince Andrew did, isn't it, really, in terms of actually uh, making clearing his neck from uh, yeah, congratulations. Yeah. There's no sweating really- and there's no Peters, but it's more or less the same. Yeah. yeah, obviously different things that he's done, but I mean, in terms of success of changing public ideas of his of his of his actions, I would say it's as, as successful. Although fewer people obviously will see it from in being aesthetic, but yeah. it was yeah, it was just a really poorly, poorly, yeah. poorly thought through interview, and, and he yeah, he comes to look poorly. Jordan Henderson has been employed by Liverpool for what seven, eight years, something like that, maybe more. More, he, I think. He, he's going to be on major wages. Major, major wages. He does not, unless he's appallingly bad at managing his finances, he doesn't need financially to go to Saudi Arabia. He would have been able to get another job uh, at another club somewhere in the equation. He could have have done a Milner and gone to Luton, the up-and-coming little club in the Premier League, helped them. Or he could have gone back to Sunderland, as Peter said, or he could have yeah. done, there's a number of things he could have done. If I had a moral stance, which he's purported to have had before, and that was the only option with any monetary significance versus the norm, I would have turned that down. Definitely, I know I would, as my moral compass would not allow me to go to Saudi Arabia, not when I'm that wealthy already, or should be that wealthy already. And I would have just taken, I, I would have taken uh, a job the, the next best job in the UK or somewhere interesting abroad. Um, I might have championed the cause if I could afford it. I might even say, Joe, you know what go back to the club of my heart or this, that or the other. 
and take a hit on wages. Don't mind that. Just to play football and be a, a local hero for a couple they of weeks. looking for camel instructors, though, I believe. <laughs> well, they're prepared to pay a lot of money. To... Now you've said that. Um, <laughs> actually, Saudi Arabia's okay, isn't it? It's not too yeah. bad. The weather's all right. Yeah. You know, there's air conditioning. You need that, to go into your, into your contract that every time you tweet about Saudi Arabia, positively, you get more money, like in, uh, <laughs> like Neymar did, apparently. A camel instructor reference. I'm a driving instructor for anyone that doesn't know. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yes, maybe. Ooh, yeah. I might look into that actually, Graham. Cheers. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah. On that, on that note. I'm actually an agent. Uh, I didn't let that, you know. In fact, <laughs> I, 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 Jordan Henderson deals through me, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gotta love it. You gotta love it. Anyway, no, uh, the, the fast that, that, that is football. Uh, this crazy septonile stuff continues, doesn't it? It'll go on forever and we'll have plenty more to discuss. We've chatted quite a bit tonight, I have to say, a bit of an epic. Um, but it's an international break. We've got less, less stuff to talk about football-wise. So I'm sure this will be a nice filler between now and when we play our next game, which is, well, eight days from today as we sit here talking. Uh, the Man United game away on the weekend uh, or after this one now, where we've done the double. We're hoping to make it three in a row. I'm not going... Four in a row. Four in a row, actually. In the league, yeah. With the 4 nil last two years ago. The FA Cup, forget about that crap. Yeah. Yeah, four in a row in the league. Yeah, Peter, you're not going, are you? Same as me. Graham, are you going to that one, the Man United game? Been there, done that. Got the T-shirt, yeah. I got the Euro T-shirt. I see it sold out. Man United. Oh, there we are. There we go. But we are going to City. We're going to City. You going to that one, Graham? I, I'm thinking about it. Okay, we might see you there. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone, thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure, Graham. Thank you for coming thank back you. on. It's been really good to hear your insight into the refereeing and refereeing assessing worlds, um, and also your opinions on various other subjects. Um, so, so thank you. We'll have you back on, I'm sure. And Peter, stand or fall. Up the Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.